This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. It's my pleasure to welcome Father Jacob Boddicker back. He's a Jesuit, an associate pastor at St. Francis Xavier Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, but he's been a number of years at Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota, which is home to the Sachangu Lakota and the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. Father Jacob Boddicker, thank you for joining us again on the show. It's great to have you back. My pleasure. During the month of October, the U.S. bishops have given us a focus. They've asked us to focus on Respect Life Month, on recognizing the dignity of the human person uh, made in the image of God. And this is something that we, obviously we're in November now, but I, I got to this a little bit late, so I wanted to take today to stay on that focus, but also to segue us into what we're focusing on in November uh, in the month of November, we recognize our unity to the whole body of Christ. And we do this in a couple of ways. Uh, one is all saints. We recognize all the saints who have gone before us. The second, we recognize all souls, all those faithful departed. Uh, and we pray for the holy souls in purgatory throughout the whole month. But all of this points to the fact that we are connected to one another as members of the body of Christ bearing that incomparable dignity, but also sharing in a common baptism. And I note with some growing alarm the, the tendency that we have to separate ourselves out by our differences rather than seeking to find unity in those things that we share. We, as, the, as Catholics, have a universal faith, and that doesn't mean that it is uh, homogenized. The faith doesn't look the same in every single place. It looks like the people who are celebrating and worshiping God where they are. And so, Father, I wanted to talk to you today specifically because of your time on the Rosebud Indian Reservation. Uh, I know that, that the faith is vibrant there, but it's also practiced maybe differently than some of us would expect. I've spent a little bit of time around tribes myself as I uh, was the director of marriage and family life in the Diocese of Tulsa, and we had a, a few tribes that were there. Uh, I remember the installation of Bishop Condorla there in the Diocese of Tulsa, where some of my listeners are. And there was, uh, right before the Mass began, right up front, there were representatives from the five tribes in that area that that did a, a short little ceremony at the beginning, This the drum circle, uh, and this a prayer that was very different than anything that I had ever experienced before, but it was very beautiful, and it was part of this celebration of welcoming the new bishop. So tell me a little bit about some of what you experienced and maybe how your understanding of the faith was broadened or enriched by what you witnessed among the Sioux people there at Rosebud Indian Mission in South Dakota. Yeah, I think it's helpful to take a step back before going there and considering where Catholicism has been in 2000 years yeah. uh, to consider, for example, that our church is actually a communion of many churches of several different rites. If uh, I, for example, a, a Latin rite, a Roman rite Catholic growing up in Eastern Iowa, as I did no experience of any other rite found myself kidnapped, blindfolded, and dropped in the middle of any of the Eastern rites for the first time. I might think either 
I was witnessing a different religion or somebody had really messed with the mass. It would be so foreign. Yeah. But praise God, my first experience of the Eastern rites was from a, a bit more of an educated perspective. <laughs> and I realized like this is just one of the many treasures of Catholicism. And what it taught me is to, to remember, you know, kind of where we've been as a religion and a church. We began with uh, a dozen Jewish guys right. who went to different parts of the world back, you know, 2000 years ago and preached the gospel. They didn't have a germ. They didn't have committees. Uh, they didn't have offices and things like that. There, there wasn't really like a hard and fast liturgy probably by then. But what happened is they preached the gospel and the people who received that gospel were inspired uh, to worship God in this way and that way, taking what the apostles had brought with them, whatever that might have been, and incorporating some of their own religious practices that could be adapted to the worship of the one true God. So in our tradition, for example, the, the Latin rite, um, you know, we have a touch of Greek in there at the Kyrie still. Um We've incorporated a lot of Jewish practice. We've got the unleavened bread, the altar, the candles, etc. Um, but there's also like the tradition of chant. I've, at least I've read somewhere uh, that that's related to the religious chanting of the ancient Roman um, religions and things like that. So there's I, I, one way I've come to look at our faith is it's in a way it's kind of like tofu, where you can. <laughs> it takes on the flavor of whatever it's cooked with. Mm -hmm. And so when the, when the gospel was brought to Egypt, it took on this Coptic flavor. When it was brought to India, it, it took on the local flavor. It became something really beautiful. Um, and so it's important to remember that. So even in our Latin rite, like genuflection, I, I believe was an, a Germanic custom, a way of showing respect to a king when you were in their presence. So we show that respect to our King in the Blessed Sacrament before we take a seat. Um, there's all sorts of little pagan, quote unquote, customs that have found a place in our worship, but well, they've and, been there for so long, we and, forget. And just for the people who are listening, I mean, yes, we have a lot of practices that were borrowed, borrowed from the culture around us. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the, the, the beautiful things about Catholicism is that when it adopts those practices, they, they take on a new character. They're now directed yes. at a new direction. So it's not that we are doing pagan practices, that, and the church uses the term, these things have now been baptized and, and are directing us towards a deeper reality than they ever would have before. Just as we, who before we were baptized, had all kinds of our own paganisms mm -hmm. as part of us, um, that through being adopted and brought into the practice of the church now have a completely different identity and bearing and, and orientation. Right. Because just like Paul in Athens, you know, he was looking around at all these temples, these statues, and he noticed this one altar and he pointed out to the Athenians like, yeah, you guys, uh, you have your, your way of worshiping and stuff. We're in disagreement here. You know, you worship this, that, and the other thing in error. But here's where the truth, the Holy Spirit has been at work 
and is, is leading you toward the truth. This is a good thing. If you, you know, hold on to this, follow this. And they're like, Oh, that's interesting. Come back tomorrow. Right. But even he noticed like within the Greek uh, religious system, he could see where the Holy spirit was already at work, preparing a path for the gospel. And that's always been the Catholic missionary perspective, as opposed to coming in and seeing what can we bulldoze and build on top of. Mm-hmm. It's like, where has God already been at work preparing the way for the fullness of the truth? Well, and even where is the truth already starting to grow and even and how can we foster that? Yeah. Yeah. I look at um, the Juan Diego, St. Juan Diego and, and the apparition of our lady of Guadalupe that when Mary came and presented herself, she presented herself as uh, a, an Aztec, as someone yeah. of that culture. Um, and, and all of the things that they understood were now brought into a context of Catholicism. They weren't done away with. We become new creations, right, when we are mm-hmm. baptized and brought into a relationship with God. But that that new creation uh, is... St. Thomas Aquinas says, grace builds upon nature. It builds on what's already there. Right. So even she took on not only the appearance of an Aztec woman, um, but also dressed um, accordingly. So like the, the black sash around her was an Aztec custom indicating that a woman was pregnant. And so took what could... Um, you know, draw Juan Diego and the people deeper into truth that was already present. Right. Because, you know, we don't believe in a God that just sits around and waits for us to figure it out. He's, he's constantly at work trying to lead us to the truth and finding any, any way in that he can. And I think the, the best of the Catholic missionary tradition has been those missionaries who are able to pick up on where has God already been opening doors, clearing ground, planting seeds and seizing upon the work he's already done and helping that to flourish as opposed to coming in like an invading army or a wrecking ball to level the ground and then to build your own vision of what Christianity should be in this place or that. And uh, I think that's always been the Jesuit missionary approach um, coming from that Ignatian principle of, seeking God at work in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, for example, the North American martyrs, their missionary success, you know, on the whole, if you look on the surface of it, uh, wasn't that successful. <laughs> um, you know, how many converts did they have? How many churches did they build? Not that many, but the successes that they did have, um, they formed deep relationships and earned the respect of a lot of people because they came in and helped with the work. Um, they helped paddling the canoes miles and miles and miles would carry them through rapids since they tended to be taller than the native people. Um, Jean de Brebeuf in particular was pretty tall. And so when they would come to rough waters, instead of having to portage the canoes through the woods, he was able to carry it over his head. And the native men that he traveled with were really impressed with that. Um, that he was willing to do that and could do it. They lived in the longhouses. Um, in Brebeuf's letters back to Europe, he talked about how difficult it was to pray the breviary in the longhouses because they were so smoky and dim that he could barely read. And it was hard to sleep at night in the winter because he could feel the mice crawling through his blankets. Um, so they not only lived with the people, lived among them, 
but learned the language, learned the culture, and sought to evangelize through that, as opposed to coming and saying, y'all need to just stop everything and copy us and become like French Catholics. Mm-hmm. There's lots of early efforts to um, translate prayers and things into uh, native dialects in that area. Um, there's records of different parts of the mass being translated into native languages. I've got a book that has several examples of the Kyrie and stuff in Algonquin. And so you had masses being celebrated in the vernacular at a time when the mass was almost exclusively Latin because there was such a desire to evangelize these people and they saw Latin as a barrier And so they wanted to try and overcome that language barrier. Um, And so even though you don't have thousands and thousands and thousands of conversions, what is some of the fruit of the North American martyrs and those Jesuit missionaries in that part of the country? St. Kateri Tekagwitha. Right. Yeah. The Lily of the Mohawks. Um, You know, the, this great uh, saint came out of that missionary effort. Um, you also have, you know, a fondness for their memory. You have the example of their martyrdom, but, uh, their missionary approach was, was very different than what we often think of when we think of missionaries in this country. And granted, some of that history is, is skewed and lost. And in, in some cases, yeah, missionaries were a bit, could, could be insensitive and brutal, especially if they were part of a political mess, <laughs> We're talking today with Father Jacob Boddicker, a Jesuit uh, out of St. Francis Xavier Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, Father, it seems like very often we, in our in our zeal to maintain uh, the truths of the faith and and to preserve that from maybe a bad praxis uh, of things that go outside of the realm of of faith, it seems that sometimes we try to keep a very tight hold on all of the expressions of faith uh, and say, well, not only do you have to, not only are these the right things to believe orthodoxy, but here's the right way to do things, uh, orthopraxy. Um, and so it, it tends to maybe quash the diversity that, that the church allows for. Uh, how do we walk that line of making sure that things stay authentically Catholic and yet allowing for that, that broad diversity, uh, whether that be culturally across the sea or culturally in our neighbor just down the street. Mm-hmm. Well, again, I think we have to remember that we're the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. So it'd be one thing if we were the Anglican church, you know, the church of England, if we were the Southern Baptists, if we were whatever um, you know, the Greek Orthodox Church or the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, we're the Catholic Church, the universal church. So diversity is a part of this church, of what it is, who we are. But it's not diversity like the world sees it. Uh, the world has this kind of like Star Trek view of diversity where we need we need everyone represented um, so it's kind of this tokenism, uh, diversity, the Catholic church's idea of diversity is diversity without division. Mm-hmm. 
And so finding a, a, a legitimate, true place for what is good, what is true, what is holy. Uh, St. Paul talks about it in a letter to the Philippians, or whatever is good, whatever is beautiful, finding a place for all that. And so when it comes to our liturgical practice, yes, we have a tradition of here is how the liturgy is celebrated. Right. But the germ, for example, when it says uh, today we wear green, but does it describe it needs to be a fiddleback or Gothic style? Right. Uh, needs to be damask or polyester, you know, it doesn't say. So wherever there's legitimate room for diversity, um, we're free to interpret that. Um, the church gives us an area to play in. Um, sometimes it does say this and nothing else. Right. And so there is that, I guess an engineer might call it tolerance, right? It's like with if you're within these parameters, uh, you're within the truth. You're you're safe, but also too, if the church is the the people, the body of Christ, well, in certain areas, people are bringing certain things with them, and so how the mass is celebrated in a Hispanic parish should be different than a suburban parish that's uh, primarily uh, white, mm-hmm. which should be different than. Uh, a parish in Nigeria, even though it's all the same right, it should be different because the people are different. And, um, you know, when Jesus would be um, dining at table in different parts of the Holy Land, like dining at table in Galilee was very different than dining at table in Jerusalem. And they were all Jewish. Um, But there's different local customs and stuff. And so I think before we get all worked up about, oh, this shouldn't be allowed or this isn't appropriate. The first thing we do is to trust that the local authority, hopefully, <laughs> is aware of what's going on and it's being permitted. So it's not just somebody at the parish thought, we should start doing this because it'd be cool. Um, that there's been thought and discernment. For example, in the Rapid City Diocese, there's been a decades long conversation between the local church and native people um, about what has an appropriate place in the liturgy and what is the meaning of things. And that's still an ongoing conversation. But um, for example, I remember going to the chrism mass and it began before mass. So outside the context of liturgy, but right before it, um, there was a prayer to the four directions and it's just kind of a, a prayer of context. Um, like let's ground ourselves in, in where we are physically in this world that God created and, and calling upon the omnipresent God to bless what we're about to do. And uh, I've been to some, some masses where instead of a, a thurible and grains of incense, you, you might have a shell with cedar or sage and an eagle feather fan. Um, does it matter if we're burning frankincense or not? I, I doubt it. Uh, so there's, there's something from that culture where there's kind of an equivalency of meaning, um, that can be adapted to the local culture. Um, my own parishes, we had, uh, a statue of our lady that was dressed in a Lakota shawl 
And it was the local people's way of showing her respect and saying, you're one of us. Uh, you're one of our women, one of our mothers. And so we're clothing you uh, as we would a woman in one of our ceremonies. And we had a matching shawl for each of the liturgical seasons. And everybody who walked in would comment how beautiful that was. And we would hang a star quilt um, in the sanctuary. And the, the star was representative of the morning star, a sign of wisdom. But also in scripture, morning star is one of the symbols of Jesus. Right. And so um, it would be a local cultural thing that had its own meaning, but it also happened to line up with a Christian meaning. So there's room for these kinds of things. Well, and we see this all the time, you know, Christmas rolls around and some parishes put up a Christmas tree. Well, that's yeah. that's not a, a first century Jewish practice. That's a Germanic practice that was brought in and the meaning was appropriated as we say, now this has deep significance for us because we can see how this points to uh, resurrection, eternal life, all the evergreen stuff, and we can look at this through Christian context and have it enrich our understanding of the season as well. Yes, and so we don't want to be arbitrary with cultural contribution, like, oh, that's interesting, that's cool, that's quaint. But if, if the church herself... Um, especially her authorities or bishops, right? Um, you know, legitimate authorities have examined things, discerned them. It's like, this is helpful for our worship. This honors God. This is a contribution this culture, this people can make. Um, we shouldn't be uh, averse to that. For example, my ancestors were tree-worshipping Germans 1,500 <laughs> years ago. And so if, if I get upset because... I go to a liturgy and there are native people in this country that have something to add to that. And it's a little different than I'm used to. I have no right to get angry because 1500 years ago, it would have been my ancestors wondering, well, can we shake hands for the sign of peace instead of kissing? Cause that's kind of what we're used to. Yeah. Um, and you know, so some Roman missionary might've been, no, we kiss here. Uh, <laughs> you know, put your hands down. So yeah, if that's done been done legitimately as opposed to arbitrary. When it's arbitrary and it's kind of like, oh, I saw this at some festival the other day. We should do this at mass. That's where we start, I think, getting into um, dangerous territory because that meaning hasn't been discerned by the church. Um, it hasn't been explored. The, the truth of it hasn't been made known. It's just kind of an aesthetic thing. And the the liturgy isn't ours to play with. Right. Um, it's the church's. And so we have to be good stewards of that. But if the church finds there, this can be welcome, this can be adapted, this can be a contribution, then um, we should rejoice in that. Because that's also, too, a sign of the incarnation. You know, the word became flesh and he happened to be culturally Jewish. And that's a wonderful thing. It's and uh, the liturgy kind of incarnates locally. Yeah. And it's interesting if, when you read the liturgical books, it's interesting just how, uh, what, what links they go to, to express the diversity of possibility, how many things are actually, uh, optional, um, mm -hmm. and down to things that we, we would think aren't like, even, you know, you get to, uh, the the Monday Thursday the Holy Thursday Mass 
And even the foot washing, which in many places is ubiquitous, that's actually an optional addition to that liturgy. Uh, And the same is true for a number of things that we just kind of take for granted as, oh, well, that's how you do it. That's how we've experienced it. But there, there is a diversity of expression of those liturgical things, except in those few cases where it's, no, 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 this is the thing you need to do. Yeah. And so again, the church gives us parameters, you know, like, I get the question all the time about the assumption of Mary, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, was, was, did Mary like fall into a deep sleep and then get taken to heaven or did she just get taken to heaven right away? And it's like the church offers both as possibilities, doesn't choose one. Yeah. So if you pick one or the other, you're falling somewhere in between somehow. As long as you're within these parameters, you're within the truth. Yeah. Um, well, you to, know, like to the uh, sign of peace is optional. Yeah. and so you know when i've had masses where um i've i've chosen to skip that for one reason or another people are like father you forgot the sign of peace like did not (laughs) (laughs) it's optional what but we always do it this way it's like we have not always done it this way for two thousand years and uh again not to say that the liturgy should be this constantly evolving and changing thing but uh, there's room for it to take on the local flavor if there is a strong kind of local flavor that, that should be um, represented. So it'd be one thing if I'm in a urban parish downtown Chicago and I decide we're going to do this cool thing we used to do on the reservation and there's not a single native person present. That's not right. Yeah. <laughs> but if I'm in a parish in the midst of native people and our, our liturgy doesn't in some way reflect that reality. Um, I think it would be good to discern like, how can we do that? If that's a desire of the people, I also think it's wrong when pastors think, Oh, we should do this because that, um, cause sometimes people are just fine the way it is. Yeah. Um, I found that at my parish in particular, the people were very content. It's like we're here at mass and the Catholic church has their way of doing the liturgy and we respect that. And that's what we want. And if we want our drum songs, if we want sage and things, then we, you know, we have our own ceremonies and things that we go to for that. Go to the neighboring reservation on Pine Ridge. And many of those parishes I've been told they have drum music during mass mm-hmm. And they offer sage instead of incense. And they've incorporated a lot of native customs in the liturgy because that's what the people wanted there. Yeah. And so even from within the same tribe on different reservations, the attitude can be very different. And of course, in some ways, we see the same thing in our own communities as one parish is very different than the parish down the street. Come share your thoughts with me over on social media. Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Do you have a story of a time that you experienced uh, an expression of Catholicism that was drastically different than what your normal experience is? I'd love to hear that story. Don't go anywhere. We've got more conversation with Father Jacob Boddicker right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today with Father Jacob Boddicker, who is a Jesuit an associate pastor of St. Francis Xavier Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, and formerly uh, worked a number of years at the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota, home to the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. Father Boddicker, it's a great pleasure to have you back on the show. Before the break, you were mentioning that there is room for diverse expression of our faith and of our Catholicism, and even there's room for some diversity of expression within the liturgy insofar as it's incarnational and it represents those peoples and those cultures that are actively engaged in the prayer of that Mass. Uh, But for most of us, we're going to pretty much experience just that one cultural expression of the Mass that we're familiar with, that we grew up with. And yet there is going to be diversity, and there is beautiful diversity, depending on whether you pray that and English or in Spanish or in a tribal language or in Italian or whatever language you find yourself uh, participating in that Mass. I wonder if you could share with us, for those of us who have just that one expression or experience, is there something that we can do that will help us gain an understanding of the breadth and the beauty and the diversity that can be found uh, within the confines of our faith and within uh, an orthodox practice of the liturgy? I think there's a couple of things. First of all, just broadening your own experience. So when I was growing up in a, a small farm town in eastern Iowa, my opportunities for experiencing the diversity of the Catholic Church was pretty limited. <laughs> um, I don't even know where the nearest Eastern Rite um, church would have been. The most diverse experience I remember growing up was in middle school. My Sunday school teacher took us on a field trip to the Basilica of St. Francis Xavier in Dyersville, Iowa, where mass was offered in Latin. And looking back, I think it was the same mass, the Novus Ordo mass, just the language was Latin. But that in itself was so foreign um, I felt like I was doing something completely new and had no idea what was going on. Uh, I can't imagine if it was actually like an extraordinary form of mass. That would have been, what planet am I on? Right. So if, if there's anything you can do to attend the mass at uh, another rite, the Maronite, Melkite, whatever it might be, and to realize like this is part of our church, even though it's so dissimilar to what, I'm used to and comfortable with. This is part of my heritage. Another way it might be if you're younger, um, going to World Youth Day. Hmm. Because even though all the liturgies are going to be Novus Ordo, you know, Latin Rite, you're going to be celebrating that with people from all over the world. And I remember the closing mass in Rio de Janeiro in 2013 within spitting distance, I didn't spit on anybody. (laughs) I was around people, a handful of people from the United States, several parts of Africa, Serbia. There were even some Christians from Catholics from Palestine, uh, not too far from me. Um, And then of course, a, a bunch of Brazilians. And so even though we all knew when to sit, when to stand, et cetera, during the mass, the responses were done in every language you could think of. 
And there were a f- three moments of the mass that are particularly uh, clear in my memory. One was uh, the Our Father. Hearing that prayer prayed in every language you could think of all around you. And even though some might argue, man, if only we all worshiped in the same language, if it was back in Latin, there is something powerful about worshiping in the same tongue, even though everybody's from different countries. Um, there's a, a movie called Joya Noel, where there's a, a beautiful scene during World War I where German soldiers, French soldiers, Scottish soldiers all come together and pray, and they all know the Latin prayers. That's really moving. But since all of us there on the beach were praying the same prayer, we knew what the other person was saying mm-hmm. in spite of not speaking that language. Yeah. And so it was this beautiful example of the Catholicity of the church um, and really kind of a, a Pentecost moment uh, where the church was speaking in tongues. Every language was being spoken and the same thing was being said. Then there was the sign of peace where you had representatives of youth from every country of the world, basically, embracing each other in peace. Only Jesus could accomplish that. So in spite of the cultural, political, linguistic differences, there was diversity without division. Uh And I'll say I learned, too, the sign of peace is done differently in different countries. Um, I was at Mass World Youth Day. Here I am, a, a Jesuit scholastic in my clerics. I turn to my right and shake hands with this young man from Africa, turn to my left to shake hands with some young lady from France, and she stands up on her toes and gives me a kiss on the cheek. And at first I was just like, what just (laughs) happened here? (laughs) But then um, I had some French, some young French people in my group later, and I asked them about that. And they said, oh, in France, that's how we do the sign of peace. We give each other a kiss. Mm -hmm. So here I was thinking like, did I give off some mixed signal? Like, no, like in that country and, and where that young lady is from, that's how the side of peace is given. And I, I just wasn't prepared for that. And, and now if ever I go to France, I need to, I guess, be prepared for that possibility. But then the third moment was after communion. I think there were three to 4 million people in attendance at that closing mass. After communion, it was almost dead silent. Wow. You could, it was silent enough you could hear the waves hitting the shore um, for the first time during that mass because there, was, there wasn't any music. There was no praying, no talking. It was very, very quiet. And so you had this other word being spoken of our reverence of our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. And so there is this kind of universal understanding of silence. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the most powerful moment is it's one thing to hear three to 4 million people praying the same prayer in all these different languages to witness the near silence of the same number of people is profound. Listen, I've got, I've got, eight kids and I can't get silence here. That's just eight. <laughs> they of all us. speak the same language. They all speak the same language. I mean, you get three, 4 million people. How do you get everybody to be quiet other than that, that genuine deep affection for the Eucharist? And, and I think it's a, a testimony to uh, that beautiful passage in scripture. You know, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow every knee. 
um, in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. So it doesn't matter. There, there are some universals in the church um, that that hit every heart that's paying attention. So again, like World Youth Day can be a beautiful example of the diversity of the church, but also its unity, not in spite of that diversity, but like with it. Yeah. And like it's a part of it. It's kind of like, is Jesus human or God? And the church is like, yes. Right. <laughs> right. Is the church diverse or unified? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so somehow Christ is able to bring two unlike things together into one thing. And if we get so tied up in this is how things are done and this is the only way, in some cases, yeah, that's true. But if, if the liturgy has to be a uniform, absolutely, then I think there's a lot of, of magi who can't bring their gifts to the Christ child. Hmm. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, uh, it would be a, a very sad thing because when there's room in the liturgy for people of different cultures to contribute something beautiful, good, and true that comes from their own making, inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, I think we're denying the work that God has carefully, painstakingly, quietly done in advance of the gospel to prepare the way for the gospel in that culture. And also to it, it robs people of kind of their unique contribution to uh, the worship. So like when you know, Cain and Abel are bringing their gifts to the Lord. Um, you know, God favored one over the other, but he didn't tell Cain like, oh man, you screwed up bad. You know, like, okay, that's good, but learn from your brother and you can do better. Yeah. Um, and also like when the Magi came bringing gold, frankincense and myrrh, like they were bringing their gifts, making their contribution. And G Joseph and Mary weren't like, um, <laughs> No, the, we're Jewish. We're not, this isn't our thing. We like the gold, but the myrrh, I don't know. Yeah, right. yeah, the gold, we... Leave the gold. <laughs> so here's but, a, uh, based on that, I have a question for you. Sure. Um, we, we learn so much from the diversity, from that, that breadth of, of an expression of who we are as the body of Christ. I'm curious if you can recall a practice or a moment uh, in your own experience, perhaps on the reservation, that the way that they expressed themselves in the liturgy expanded your own understanding of that particular truth of God and helped you see your own place in the kingdom in a broader place than you otherwise would have. Hmm. I think one thing that really... Um, kind of changed my perspective on some things is the Lakota. And I'd say more broadly among a lot of native people, the kind of their in tuneness to the spiritual reality of, of reality, the spiritual side of reality, there's constant talk about spirits and the spiritual side of things. And they're very in touch with that on, on a level that a lot of us aren't, even though we talk about, the intercession of saints and the community of saints and the, the role of angels. We're, we're not really, we don't live very consciously of it. Mm -hmm. They do. And all of them 
every one of the the Lakota that I met out there, they have stories of interactions and encounters with different spirits, good and bad. And especially when it comes to the dead, there is such a devotion to uh, their dead relatives. And when somebody dies, uh, there is such generosity and tenderness that can come out of the people. And they'll do anything to see that their deceased loved one has uh, a respectful burial and prayers. Um, there's a tradition of, of four days of, of mourning. They often will have two days of awake before the funeral and um, meals and prayers and prayers and prayers and prayers. And a year later, we'll have a memorial service for that person um, taking care of the grave. I've One of my little hobbies was to go exploring and finding all of the old Catholic cemeteries. And every one I went to, with the exception of maybe one or two, even if it was extremely remote and you're wondering how the heck did anybody get out here without four-wheel drive, I found graves that showed recent evidence of having been cared for, that somebody was remembering this person, even if it says on the grave they died in the 1800s. Yeah. somebody is remembering this person. And, uh, and so it really cultivated in me a deeper uh, appreciation for the spiritual side of reality. And that um, what we see is not all there is. Yeah. And they, that's just how they live. Um, even when they have meals, many of them have the practice of the spirit plate where they, take a little portion of everything that's being served, put it in a bowl, put it on a plate. They thank God for the food that they've received. And then they set it outside their door for any spirits that might be passing by uh, that are hungry, alone, lost. Um, or if some animal comes by on it first, whatever. But it's it just a way of being mindful that we live in a reality that is both matter and spirit. That one's very interesting to me because it seems very similar to what's done at the Pas- Passover meal where you have the the plate for Elijah. Um, yeah. The, the, so to see the, just the the kind of universal, maybe embedded in our human uh, understanding that just kind of built into our DNA to to do that. And, and sometimes it's important for us to realize that we in our Western culture are the odd ones out and not necessarily the other way around. Well, even in the mass, we always pray for the dead. We always remember them, and um, and we often we uh, will offer mass for the dead, and so it's like the dead have a place at the table of our worship as well, and so even though I wouldn't say that we should leave a, a host on a patent outside the church door, right? Um, that that native practice that I experienced helped me to be even more mindful, especially during the part of the mass where we do pray for the dead. Or when I'm offering mass for somebody who has died, it just kind of, I, I guess it deepened my perspective of what what's going on there. And it really helped me to be much more attentive to um, talking to my guardian angel. Like, especially if, um, you know, something disastrous just about happened, or if I had almost forgotten something, or um, something worked out when I didn't think it would. Instead of being like, oh man, I was so lucky. I like being 
on the reservation reminded me is like, I got to thank my angel. Yeah. Like my angel is helping me out here. Um, and to be, yeah, mindful that I'm not alone. I don't exist in a vacuum. There are, there's a whole spiritual reality that I can't see, but it's real. And living out there really brought that awareness uh, to the full in me. That's a great place for us to to leave off as we've just now celebrated all saints and all souls. And for this whole month, we're invited to to be mindful of those who have gone before, who we are still connected to. So I want to encourage you as you are going about your day, going about your week, maybe, maybe you just pick up the practice of making the sign of the cross and saying a quick prayer every time you pass a, uh, every time you pass a, a cemetery and praying for the souls of uh, the faithful departed, whatever that is for you to find a broadening of your understanding of our connection to one another. I encourage you to enter into that. Father Jacob Boddicker is an associate pastor of St. Francis Xavier Catholic Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, and formerly spent a number of years at the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota, a mission of the Jesuits. Father, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. If you missed any part of my conversation with Father Jacob Boddicker, or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. While you're there, perhaps you want to look and listen to the first episode where we had Father Jacob on. He talked about the Sacrament of Confession. You can find that by clicking in the top left-hand corner. There's three little bars. That opens up a menu that shows all of the people we've had on the show in the past. Just look down for Father Jacob Boddicker. Click his name in this episode and the other episode he's been a part of. will just pop right up. Also, there's an extra segment. It's a super secret extra segment that I tell you about every week. It's available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air. And in gratitude, we make extra segments each and every week. If you want to learn more about it, click that link in the top right-hand corner of the page that says Patreon hyphen support the show. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of our Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching, linking the catechism to the documents of the church to other magisterial documents throughout history and putting them right at your fingertips. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 2. Brothers and sisters, you are no longer strangers and sojourners. But you are fellow citizens with the Holy Ones and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the capstone. Through him, the whole structure is held together and grows into a temple sacred in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That reading comes from the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians. And here is just another reminder that we are part of the whole. We are part of the whole of the temple of God. We're not the whole thing in and of ourselves. And more than just that, by ourselves, we are insufficient. Yes, we are living stones. That's wonderful. But in order for us to be useful for God, we have to be built together into that temple. Living stones built together into a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. We need one another. We have things to offer to those who are part of us, but also we have something to receive from them. 
May God give us the wisdom and the humility to be able to recognize and walk in that. Our reading from Church History today comes from a book addressed to Monimus by St. Fulgentius of Ruspa. The spiritual building up of the body of Christ is achieved through love. As St. Peter says, Like living stones, you are built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And there can be no more effective way to pray for this spiritual growth than for the church, itself Christ's body, to make the offering of his body and blood in the sacramental form of bread and wine. For the cup we drink is a participation in the blood of Christ. And the bread we break is a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, since we all share the same bread. And so we pray that by the same grace which made the church Christ's body, all its members may remain firm in the unity of that body through the enduring bond of love. We are right to pray that this may be brought about in us through the gift of the one Spirit of the Father and the Son. The Holy Trinity, the one true God, is of its nature unity, equality, and love, and by one divine activity sanctifies its adopted sons. That is why Scripture says that God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit He has given us. The Holy Spirit, who is the one Spirit of the Father and the Son, produces in those to whom He gives the grace of divine adoption the same effect as He produced among those whom the Acts of the Apostles described as having received the Holy Spirit. We are told that the company of those who believed were one heart and soul, because the one Spirit of the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is one God, has created a single heart and soul in all those who believed. This is why St. Paul, in his exhortation to the Ephesians, says that this spiritual unity and the bond of peace must be carefully preserved. I, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, he writes, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, with all humility and meekness, and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. God makes the church itself a sacrifice, pleasing in His sight, by preserving within it the love which His Holy Spirit has poured out. Thus the grace of that spiritual love is always available to us, enabling us continually to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him forever. That reading comes from a book addressed to Monimus by St. Fulgentius of Ruspa. Unity is hard, and Jesus knew it would be hard. 
This is why in the high priestly prayer, shortly before his passion, in the Gospel of John chapter 17, he prays that prayer. I pray that they would be one, Father, as you and I are one. St. Fulgentius talks about this just a little bit in referencing the unity of the Father and Son as being tied up in the Spirit, and that that same Spirit of the Father and Son is given to us, and that it should produce in us the same fruits. This is what St. Peter calls being a sharer, a partaker in the divine nature. This is, uh, this is our ultimate goal. The day is going to come once we get all the way through purgatory, once we find ourselves completely purified, standing before the throne of God, worshiping him forever, we're going to find ourselves in unity with all of those who are in that place with us. There is a unity in the church that we can't fully see because of the disunity we have introduced. But this sort of disunity should make us uncomfortable because this is not the church that we were created to be. How do we live out this bond of peace? Well, St. Fulgentius of Ruspa tells us that this is accomplished through and only through love. And remember, God is love. So how do we live in light of this love in such a way that we are compelled toward that unity for which we were made and to which we are called? Simply this. Jesus tells those following along on the fringes a number of times, but the one I'm thinking of, I think, is Luke 9. He says, If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. There is a self-denial in discipleship that says, I'm not going to react to my first inclination. I'm going to subvert my will and align it with the will of God. And if that will is for unity, then that's where I'm going to put myself. If that means that I have to uh, shut down some of my opinions and and listen more fully to the Holy Spirit, then, then that's what it's going to entail and what it's going to require of us. It's never fun to discipline ourselves and to listen more closely to the voice and the will of God than it is to our own opinions. But this is what we have to do if we're to achieve that unity and that peace, which is a mark of the church to which we are called. Well, speaking of um, being unified, I am going to be praying for you this next week. I am right now, as you're listening to this, I'm on a plane uh, on my way to Rome. This is my first trip to Rome, and I am going to hit as many of the churches as I can in between my meetings Uh, and I'm going to be praying for you. So if you have a prayer request that you would like me to pray uh, before the relics and the beautiful things that are there in Rome, leave it in the comments. I want to know how I can be praying for you by name and by intention. Leave those prayer intentions over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. If you don't want it in a public comment, leave it in a private message. I want to be praying for you. Today's show is brought to you by Brandy Carey and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that link in the top right-hand corner of the page, and join their numbers. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.